You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating with Rachel Heinemann. I'm a licensed mental health counselor and certified eating disorder specialist. On this weekly podcast, we talk about all things psychoanalysis and eating disorder recovery. It's a combination of interviews with experts in psychoanalysis and eating disorders and some solo episodes where it will just be the two of us. The goal of the podcast is to help you try to understand a little bit more about yourself, gain a deeper understanding for why you do the things you do, and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. Hello, hello. Episode 103 with Sandra Cronberg. So this is a really important conversation because we're talking about, well, we're talking about a lot of things, but one of the main things that we're talking about is what to do when you feel stuck. And I know that if any of you either struggle with your relationship with food now or have in the past, this is something that has come up for you so many times. You just feel stuck and you have no idea what to do. And to be fair, whenever you feel stuck about literally anything under the sun, you can use this information to try to see how you can get yourself unstuck. I think this is one of the most helpless and hopeless positions that anybody can find themselves in when they feel stuck. And then it sort of spirals downward from there. So if we can get you some more knowledge and tools to get yourself out of it, we've struck gold. And I think Sandra has so many ideas and formulas for you to use in order to move past this feeling of stuck and actually get you to a place where you want to go. Now, you know Sandra already, but if you if you don't, let me share a little bit more about her. She's a registered dietitian, certified eating disorder registered dietitian and supervisor. She's been in the field for decades. Like that's why you know her. You just know her. She's a founder and executive director for Eating Disorder Treatment Collaborative, Feed IOP, Connect and Concierge programs in New York. And she is the founding member and past board trustee of National Eating Disorder Associations, the author of Comprehensive Learning slash Teaching Handout Series Manual for Eating Disorders and Contributing Author to Eating Disorders, the Clinical Guide to Counseling and Treatment and Eating Disorders in Special Populations, Medical, Nutritional, and Psychological Treatments. She received the International Association of Eating Disorder Professionals, which is IADEP, 2010 Certified Eating Disorder Specialist Award, which is not for everybody, by the way. The NIDA, which is the National Eating Disorder Association, 2004 Excellence in Treatment Award, and the 2002 Scan Excellence in Practice Award. In 2018, she received NIDA's first Legacy Award. So, like, she's a big freaking deal. Currently contributes to the IADEP core course, which is the thing that people take in order to get their SEDs. She's a national speaker. She's a treatment consultant. She's speaks in the media. She's also a consultant for the Carolyn Costin Institute. So Sandra's a legend. She is a pioneer in the field of treating eating disorders. She's been around for ages and has shaped the way the field runs. So let's stop talking about her and talk to her. Okay. So I'm very excited for today. First of all, thank you so much for coming on. Um, It is an honor for us to have you. (laughs) It's fun to be here and I'm excited as well. Yeah. I'm really excited to talk about the topic that we had discussed, just like feeling stuck and all that. I think it's, I think it really happens for almost everyone. They feel stuck and like, what the heck do I do? 
But maybe before we even jump into that, can you explain a little bit more about, and maybe this is semantics, but I think you've talked about how you call yourself a nutrition therapist and specifically not a dietitian. Although, as an aside, how do you spell dietitian? Is it a T or a C? I think the recovered dietitians spell it with a T, T-I-T-I-A-N. And uh-huh. in the olden days, it was a C. Oh, interesting. So none of them are wrong. I think both are acceptable, but you know, I, I actually had divorced myself from the American Dietetics Association and divorced myself from the name of being a dietitian because to me, uh, it was associated with uh, diets. It was associated with big business, the sugar companies. And I, I didn't learn anything about what I needed to know about eating disorders through the dietetics profession. There was no space for us. I ended up, and maybe this goes right into what you asked me. Yeah. I ended up going to uh, many uh, psychological workshops and social work workshops and that were designed to treat people with eating disorders. And I learned a lot about eating disorders, the underlying issues. Uh, you know, the feelings that were related to it. And so I had to claw my way up the the chain to look at, well, what does that mean in terms of food and how is use of food and how I feel about my body or a symptom of some underlying either cognitive impairment or some underlying psychological uh, disorder. And so that was sort of my entry into the field of eating disorders when I couldn't get any answers in the American Dietetics Association. So having had psychologists and social workers and psychiatrists as my training ground, I became this oddball nutritionist. (laughs) Uh, You sound, you know, like my patients these days will say, you sound more like a therapist than a nutritionist. And what I've come to learn is that even though I knew how to help people diet and what they needed uh, factually to eat and have their body functions, there was so much more between what I what you cho- what one cho- chooses to eat, underlying behaviors, patterns, attachments. You know, I used to do an exercise where I would have people stick their hand in the bag and pull something out, right, and then give me what your intellectual understanding of this food is. And what your emotional attachment to the food is, right? So oh, like, I love that. It's a great exercise. You can think of like, you know, hot chocolate chip cookies would, you know, have like many diet judgments attached to it. But also hot chocolate chip cookies could remind you of your grandmother or could be, you know, some way that you comforted yourself when you were a child, when you felt alone. So we can see that food, eating, sense of body, sense of self is much more dimensional and complex. And that's why treating eating disorders is so complex, right? So there's an emotional part to it, a behavioral part to it, and a physiological part to that. And I think over the when I got into the field, it was mostly being treated by in psychotherapy and counseling, and it was looked at as a mental illness, and that's where the treatment was. And in getting into it, we, we begin to develop this need to not only address the underlying emotional issues, like, for example, if somebody starts smoking because, you know, they, they're watching divorce go on between their parents or they're going through a divorce themselves, 
even when the emotional pain of the divorce is over, the smoking is still there. And so the same thing is true with an eating disorder. If you develop an eating disorder because you have a genetic predisposition and because you have chosen this way as a way of getting through surviving, once the initial stimulus is gone, you're still left with the behavior. And so to treat it just from the underlying issues doesn't resolve the behavior. And so we developed this You know, when I got into the field of eating disorder, there was no real field. And so in the early parts of this, we developed this collaborative approach. I was in a supervision group with all therapists, and we began to collaborate on patients and look at the underlying emotional pieces, which I became much more savvy about. And they began to look at what could physiologically be causing these cravings right? What's the physio, if if somebody diets or undernourishes or leaves out one category of food, they're going to be in a state of longing and craving. And that's going to create a whole set of behaviors. So we have the underlying emotional issues, we have the physiological movement, and then we have the behaviors that develop. And now later in this era, we now look at, there's another impact, which impacts all of this, like it's genetics. So that something genetic would influence basically how my physiology works, or it might influence Mm -hmm. how I behave, you know, a genetic predisposition to be more perfectionistic or a genetic predisposition to be more comparative would change the behavior. Um, A genetic predisposition to be more impulsive would change the behavior. So there's always been emotional, behavioral, and physiological. And now we have a better understanding about how gen- genetics influences all of those things. Even just the word dietitian wouldn't encompass any of that. It would just be like, okay, here's your meal plan and that's the end of it. And that's not really that helpful. Yeah, no. And of course, when I think dietitian, I think of those people that, and I was one of those people, so who got <laughs> out of school and had to do an internship in a hospital you know, I work so hard in my, it's a science program. You have to know Mm -hmm. science. You have to know chemist, organic chemistry. You have to know biology. Oh God. You know, you have to know physiology. It's a very heavy science program to become a dietitian. And then I got out of school and I was working in a hospital and I'm like, these people are so ill and they're giving them the worst food possible. Like the food service companies were like working to save money. I remember this is a little off track, but I remember yeah. the carts of milk going up on the trays and coming back whole to going up to sick people, coming back whole and the food service companies wanting to save them to save money. Oh, so God. there was a complete discrepancy for me as to, you know, here I am. I learned all about food and nutrition and how to take care of one's body by well eating. And we can talk about what that means in terms of eating disorders. And here are these really sick people that are getting poor nourishment. <laughs> and so yeah. I had mm. like this brain torque. Like, what am I, you know, like, what do I really want to do now that I got this degree and know all of this? And I also remember going out into practice and saying, okay, I'm going to help people lose weight. And, you know, I was armed with all this information. And then the people got into my office. And, and this was really early on. So this is before. And I was like, wait a minute. They know more. They know a lot about dieting. They know yeah. about <laughs> how to do this. But there's something else going on here that's not mm-hmm. a lot, you know, like they, uh, you know, and there's a whole beating up and a whole amount of shame. And there's all these things that 
are happening when somebody tries to change their either natural body weight or when somebody is using food as a way of comfort or anesthetizing or distancing or distracting uh, in the same way that somebody might use drugs. And me telling them what to do is not going to help the situation. Yeah, absolutely not. (laughs) So that was when I sort of started looking for help for myself to be able to help them. And that was when I got into the whole field of eating disorders and got my training from other therapists who were working with the emotional underlying stuff. Now, then you say, how did you, what, you know, so what do you, so who are you? What are you? And I call myself a cognitive behavioral nutrition therapist because I'm not just giving quick fixes. I am in these long-term relationships. I mean, recovering from an eating disorder with consistency could take four to seven years or more, right? And so I'm in this long-term relationship. Not to freak anybody out. It's not like nothing happens before four years. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, all of this is is generalization, right? So everybody comes to their healing process in in a different way. But in general, because there was no, there weren't a lot of treatment centers, there wasn't, there's hardly any coverage nutrition, I mean, for nutritionists. It's been a long process. I've worked with the National Eating Disorders Association, the International. I've worked a lot to try and make things different. And we've made a little bit of progress, but not a lot. But my evolution really came to not that I'm going to dwell into the underlying emotional causes of this, because that's the role of my partner, the therapist or the psychologist that I'm working with. But I need to know about that. It's sort of like an overlap. But I also work more immediately with like, it's sort of about self-talk and the kind of self-talk that goes on in eating disorders is all about not being good enough, loathing, feeling like, you you know, the only way to feel better about yourself is to change how you look or your weight or your body. And so what I'm really working on with people and that is, what are you thinking? What are you telling yourself in that situation? So I'm not so much about oh my God, you know, my boyfriend is leaving me. Although I'll need to know that because I'll need to know what sort of triggers this eating disorder behavior or the escalation of your loathing thoughts. But I'm not going to deal with that. I'm going to deal with what is the earliest thought that you have? Because in my way of working, what you think well, whatever the word you use, like if you use, um, you know, in fact, I have a women's group last night and somebody was like, I'm, I'm disgusting. I'm like, whoa, that's, that's a word. Like, I mean, if you nurture mm-hmm. that word, how does that make you, what do you think? How does that thinking make you feel? How does that feeling make you behave? And then how does that behavior it reinforce your identity? So yeah. that's my the essence of what I do. It's like, whoa, you know, like I'm, everybody who works with me knows that words are really powerful. In fact, on the chats that I do, we all pick a word, you know, and there's a, the whole PowerPoint of words that people have put more so words of nourishment, more so mer- words of encouragement, because you get to choose what words you choose. Right. Mm-hmm. So, I love that. Semantics are so important. People yeah. underplay them too much. Right. And so I, I'm like a big, like, and I'm like, Oh, that word just went round peg square hole. I'm like, <laughs> my brain is, whoa, disgusting. Like, whoa. And so disgusting, 
kind of goes down the chain from word to thought to feeling to behavior to identity. And so that's why I call myself a cognitive behavior therapist, because if we want to change your interrelationship with your food, your weight, and in this culture, yourself, because in this right. culture, how you think about yourself, your food, your weight, your body is, is part of the determinant of self in our culture. Just so if you want to change that, we have to get we have to scroll down to like, what are you thinking? What are you telling yourself? How did that come to be that you decided to, you know, do that or do this? And I try not to elicit too many behaviors because it's, you know, who, I don't talk about it like that. So, so if you want to, what are you telling yourself? You're disgusting. Can, and then that might be something that I would collaborate with the therapist. Like, where does that come from? Like, and, and I also do things like who's talking? Mm-hmm. Who got, you know, like, so I know a lot about therapy. I know a lot about parts and internal family systems, and, you know, and I can pull <laughs> from pieces of that. So I would definitely say I'm not a dietitian because I wouldn't know that as a dietitian. And That's I've true. spent four, 40 years cultivating this. And, and, and while food and weight and body are sort of the Play-Doh, it's really, we know that eating disorders are happening below the surface and if we don't get to below the surface what are you thinking what are you telling yourself and how does that make you feel how does that make you act what would have to happen for that to change you know and who can help you right those are this is these are all leading questions and they're pretty therapeutic questions right if you get Uh, yeah but they're not like (laughs) like you know um you know trauma-based and although there's a whole slew of nutritionists now that are doing trauma-based therapy because where else do you hold your trauma but in your body? And how does it right. speak to you, not with voice, but with you know reflection on your body? And how does shame about your body, where trauma might take place, either verbally or emotionally or physically, manifest? If my fix for that manifestation in this culture, I, you stop me when you want me to stop. Is like no, 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 go for, ahead. I'll ask your question. My, I'll jump my in. So. Fix for that is to change my body, to try and fix it, to diet it, to change the size, the shape, or the color, or whatever. And that becomes uh, an insurmountable mountain. And I once again have failed. I've lost. I'm not good enough. I'm bad. So the, the attempts to diet, to eliminate shame, okay, reinforces the shame. So somebody's and, caught in this cycle then, basically, yeah, and they come well, in. They, most people with diet, diet with eating disorders are because they're on this continuum of I don't like myself. I don't feel good about who I am. I'm not worthy. Mm-hmm. Going even as far as saying I'm worthless, I'm a failure, right? And all and and where does that come from? I mean, there's some g- genetic evidence that. Some are more prone to that, but we also know that we are a product of both nurture and nature. So one person might experience and and react to differently. Another person experiences and it's some form of trauma that I'm trying to fix. And if the fix in this culture is to look better on the outside or to be thinner or get more accolades, then that becomes a never-ending process, Okay. 
So let's say somebody is stuck in this cycle. I mean, not let's say this is probably everybody that walks through our door and they come and they're yeah. like, okay, well, here's my issue. I, I want this, but I can't get it. And I have a terrible relationship with food, but I just really can't get out of it. You know, they're, they're just stuck in the cycle. What, the whole definition of stuck is that they don't know where to go. So like, where do they go? <laughs> well, first of all, recognizing that you and I and anybody who's treating eaters must recognize that people with eating disorders are the most stuck people because they just are going around in this circle all the time. And they're not just stuck in the circle, but what we know about brain flexibility and rigidity and gear shifting, they are really stuck. So there might be a genetic predisposition towards being more, to, to having more stickiness, as Cindy Bueller would say, stickiness, brain stickiness. So the first thing I would, I mean, I don't know the answer. So like, I'm really humble about not knowing the answer and working on it with whoever I'm working on. Like, let's see what comes up. But the first thing I say about that is really recognizing that this has helped you. There's something about this that you needed at some point. There's a part of you that needed to be anesthetized, distanced, distracted, whatever it is. I don't know. Let's try and figure it out together. It's sort of like taking the pacifier away from the baby. You can't really just yank the pacifier away. You have to understand the meaning and the value and maybe offer some other, you know, like when you're going to go from pacifier to bottle, it's like, okay, you know, what would it be like to try this? And you are, you're step by step guiding somebody from using this tool, create, you know, looking at the behavior, the cycling, the weight. By the way, I would say that people who are stuck in this are stuck in the pattern of self-loathing. For sure. There's very little self. And that self-loathing, it's almost like beating a horse to death. Like you're never going to get that horse to get up. The only way you're going to get that horse to get up is with some kindness and some compassion and some understanding for, okay, you needed this at some point. This helped you at some point. Now it's sort of become the life preserver that's going to drown you. It's going to end you. Yeah. So if you think about it, what sometimes keeps people stuck or not the only thing, but part of what pe keeps people stuck is the idea that then they feel guilty or there's all this self-loathing and then it's just brings them right back in. So if you insert something different over there, like curiosity or compassion, then we can choose maybe a different direction. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, one of the things, I mean, so the word you use was different. So I'm the word person. I got hooked right into that word when you said it. When I have this standard, like, you know, I give them a lot of things. And one of the things I do both in voice and in paper is new, different, opposite, hard, scary, and uncomfortable, new, different, opposite. So I'm kind of mantraing to them instead of being afraid of those things, which is why you're in that same circle, because you know what? Self-loathing feels comfortable for you. You don't like it, but you know where it begins and you know where the middle and you know where it ends. So if we keep going around in that circle because it feels safe, easy, and comfortable, that's stuck. That's the ultimate stuck. But the way that we move forward, even if we don't know the answer, is just to try something new, different, opposite, hard, scary, to put on your radar that new, different, opposite, hard, scary, and uncomfortable, not scary, dangerous, but just scary, you know, like, oh my God, my heart is beating, is the opportunity to have a breakthrough. If you tie your left shoe, tie your right shoe first. Take a shower this way, take it that way. It's just the opportunity to create new neural pathways in your brain. So that Can you give me an example, a little like a, of something specific to food and someone feeling stuck with their relationship with food that would fall under that category. 
Yeah. I mean, if you're used to having, the, I mean, it's very easy. I mean, our patients could either eat the same way or eat the same time or, you know, think if they eat this, they have to do that. And it's like, okay. And I have a, a handout that I use that goes from perfectly safe to moderately safe to a little scary to very scary to like, unbelievably, I'm not doing that. And what I'm asking them in that handout in particular and related to food is list the way you view foods. What is your categorizing of foods? And so a challenge for the week might be, can you move from just all this really safe food to one moderate? Or can you, you know, like, what would it, what would it be like? And so that's the challenge with new different opposite hearts, Gary. If you're used to only going to this restaurant, what would it mean when all of your friends say, let's try something else? And you go, oh, no, 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 no. I'm either not going or, you know. So doing all those things, it happens a million times a day. We all do it. We all we all are stuck in patterns of, of that feel comfortable for us because it makes us feel safe and structured. We don't all have the aversion to trying something new. And at the same time that we have the aversion to trying something new and I'm stuck in the same place. There's that dichotomy of, oh, I can't believe I'm stuck in the same place, right? But I'm scared to try something new. So we, we know we can hold, you know, different feelings at the same time. But it could be about, could be about anything. It could be about, you know, whether I wear my hair up or I put my hair down or whether I, you know, I eat before or later or I eat 10, you know, a lot of the patients with eating disorders have what I call pushing, right? Because they're afraid if they eat, they won't stop eating, including those clients with anorexia they push and then they push their eating to the very end of the day. And so what would it be like to start it earlier? Yeah. Any rule, if you, ask, if you work with clients with eating disorders, the rule book goes on and on and on and on. And it so you ask <laughs> like a them CVS for the rule book and, and you might not even get half the rules unless you ask the right questions. Like I remember in session one time asking somebody this question 14 times. Now, I attribute my seasonedness to be able to asking something 14 times. I don't think any of my younger people would ask something 14 times. And I'm just like, you know, a part of me is like wondering like 14 times till finally the client would say, all right, you're right. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, okay. So what would it be like to do before you get to doing it differently? You have to get sort of a join in right. that the way you're doing it is not serving you well. And that takes a lot of time too, right? Like, why would I do it differently? Like, this keeps me safe. This right. keeps me happy. This keeps my weight down. Right. But in terms of the stuckness, I'm curious um, if there's a difference between different types of eating disorders. I don't love the categories that we've created, but if we're going to think about somebody who typically binges or restrict binges, someone who typically is more restrictive, does right. the whole stuck thing look different? I think it does. I think if we talk about genetic predisposition or even in more psychological terms, temperament, Mm -hmm. right? There's a whole new temperament treatment that is being put out now. Somebody who's more predisposed to struggle with anorexia has a more rigid mind and the stuckness is like, like this, like I can only do the same thing at the same time. Like change is terrifying like those are the clients that come into your room and you move something on the shelf and they go like okay why did that go over there like everything (laughs) needs to fit into place it back it could be it's connected to anxiety more it's connected to ocd a little bit i mean it has some other flavors to it but it, it really all is about fear fear of change 
And so everything must remain the same. In a and what happens in those kind of patients is that things get narrower and narrower, and and the what's what's acceptable as safe is smaller and smaller, and that's yeah. more in the anorexic rigid brain set, and that's what you get there in terms of stuckness. But if you move a little further along the continuum to bulimia, the bulimic tendency is to be more impulsive, and so you'll get these moments of you know, I want to do it and I'll do it. And then I feel guilty. So in bulimia, you have more guilt and shame as the stuck piece. So you have this cycle of yeah. moving on an impulse. These are people that start jobs and stop. I mean, what happens to the brain is what you see in the food, but it's not just about the food. So, uh, you know, these are people that go on dates and have sexual promiscuity. I'm not, I'm not, I'm really, really overgeneralizing everybody. <laughs> yes. But they move more on the impulse because that's their genetic predisposition and that's their temperament. And so that happens with food as well. It happens with exercise as well because they're using that mind. And so the stuckness with them tends to be more, I start with the bang and I, you know, and then I'm like, and then I have to get rid of it. It's all for bust. It's not going to work. And that's a cycle of stuckness. It's a different cycle, right? Yeah. And the cycle of stuckness with, somebody starts struggling with binge eating disorder, which is a whole nother mindset. It has to do with more compulsion. Also has to do with more trying to fill up and not feeling feeling empty on the inside, not getting enough. And so, and that could be with everything. I don't get enough love. I don't get enough respect. I don't get enough attention, blah. So also I don't get enough food. And so I'm filling up with that, but it's not satisfying me. And so I'm in this chronic state of longing and I keep using food to try and fill that up and then feeling angry and loathsome about my behavior and what's happening to my weight, but I still haven't filled my need. And so that's, that's stuckness. Yeah. Do you think that the, that addressing the stuckness is, is different for all three categories? I mean, obviously everyone's on a continuum of the categories or is it more so the same way? I think a couple of things. I think you do have to like, the healing process for the rigidity of anorexia, who is about saying no, 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 is to begin to say yes, to teach them how to say yes mm -hmm. and to take things in. Like that's metaphor, right? right? Start totally. taking, taking people in, taking your therapist in, you know, not pushing everybody away. That's metaphor. So that's how you start that change in stuckness. Try new things, new different opposite hearts, scary and uncomfortable. The process of unstuckness for the bulimic, who is less about scare, you know, they're impulsive. They're like, you know, co-disordered. They ha might have alcoholism or sexual promiscuity. They're impulsive. Mm -hmm. So the healing of stuckness for them is to help them take things in and keep it, mm -hmm. like to be more stable and less impulsive. And when I say take things in and keep it, obviously, again, being metaphoric, I'm not just talking about the food, sure. I'm relationship, epidemics, job opportunities, all those things that become a heavy start, and then I'm gone, you know, then I'm out. Mm -hmm. And the unstucking of binge eating disorder is to learn how to set limits and boundaries and to be able to say no, because these are the people who say almost yes to everybody in the universe, mm -hmm. but don't get their own needs so met. Themselves. Yeah. They don't get their own needs met. And so the healing process there, in fact, I, a patient of mine called me and said, uh, uh, text me, they don't call me, text me, I'm really struggling, I'm really struggling. She's a, 
a high functioning professional and has got a lot on her plate. And I, I, my answer to her was, what did, what do you need to say no to? Like Mm. she's calling me and telling me she wants to really binge. And I'm saying, what do you need to say no to? Because when you can't say it where you need to say it, you go into your, you're in your behavior and you're acting out the behavior where you really want to say no to yourself, but you can't. Yeah. You're saying yes to yourself. I think it's so important to, to differentiate the categories because I think if we drive this point home of like, what do you need to say no to? It is so wildly transformative for some people and it's pushing them further into rigidity for some other people, which means that, that it's, you know, take it with a grain of salt, depending on who you are, depends what piece of advice we would give you. And also over time, Rachel, I call that a continuum, right? So it's not unusual for the, to get your, my, forget the terminology. Don't go, don't get mad at me. My more anorectic. quotes here. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, My more anorectic patients to start to say yes and to have them be more bulimic in behavior to need to feel feel how how they're going to get rid of it and usually with that Mm -hmm. rigid anorexia that's some form of exercise getting rid of so that looks good it doesn't look like the other kind of binge eating and purging but it's still a compensatory behavior so when i see some movement of my clients moving from no 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 to a little bit yes i also would be watching for some time uh, some type of compensatory behavior it's also not unusual and this is to have our compulsive binge eating clients be more restricted. They're going on the latest lettuce and tomato diet or some way in which they've now gone over to this side. So this there's a flow back and forth based on A, what the environment is feeding them, and B, what, you know, where they are in their growth process and development and how they're handling that. So yeah, there's a there's a flow that goes back and forth. Yeah, I think you ha- you were talking about um, a few things that are really important to remember when if we're thinking about actual change happening. And I wonder if you can talk more about those things because without them, I don't think that any of this can actually happen. So some of the words, because you know I'm a cognitive behavioral <laughs> nutrition therapist. Some of the words I use with people are finding some kind of choice that that they're not driven, they're not stuck. Even when a thought comes up automatically and they were designed to protect us. I often say this little example, like when you were a kid and you were three years old and your parents said to you, you cannot cross the street without holding my hand. It was a very important thought and it's probably still in there, okay? But when you're 45 and you're going to cross the street and that thought comes up, you cannot cross the street without holding somebody. That's part of the stuckness. The thought is still there. But whether or not you listen to the thought is going to make a difference in how you act and behave. So there are lots of thoughts that come up like that in eating disorders. I should do this. This is bad. This is good. I want to eat because I feel angry, because I feel lonely. You might not even have the thinking process that goes along with it. You might just have, I want to eat. And so beginning to look at your ability to manage your thoughts, like you can, oh, that's a nice thought. I don't have to follow it. I have a choice. I don't have to act on it. I have a choice. Or what's in my, these are questions that I have, you know, I'm drilling all this wording because I'm creating, I'm trying to create with clients, not the underlying emotional resolve, 
but the new way to talk to themselves and the new way to think about things. So that's my cognitive behavior. Like, what are you thinking? What are you telling yourself? And then ask questions. So once you get recognized, oh, there's a thought, then you get into the pause or you get into what other people would call mindfulness. You stay calm. You say, okay, so I catch the thought. Then I want to consider the thought. Is this in my best interest? Does this support my goals? How am I going to feel about this in the long run? This is a good, everybody needs to come up with their own questions. You help them because different questions mean to think. The last question I have that's kind of like a, a boilerplate is, is this hurtful, harmful, or healing? And that's a moment where you get to make a choice. And then the second thing is to really choose something that's going to take you where you want to go. So that's how I think change. That's how I deal with stuckness. Mm -hmm. It's huge. It needs a lot of work. Right. It's not just like an equation here and that's it. If the automatic thought is the one that dominates, right? But we have to look at that and say, oh, who put that thought there? Or is that appropriate? There's lots of questions that you ask, you know, in that moment in time, which gives you the ability to choose. And choosing is a form of freedom. You know, I get to choose. It totally is, yeah. There's something about an eating disorder, if you talk to clients, is that what started out as something that they decided is now deciding them. Like they've lost, what started out, you'll often hear people say, oh, I, it felt like I, it, I had more control or I, I you know, I get, gave me some organization and some order. But what started out as that is something that is now controlling them. They don't have a lot of choice. They're st- stuck in this right. w- windstorm. And so choice, coming, getting back to that choice gives a lot of freedom And the other word that I think is important is being flexible. Like I might not choose the same thing today at 12 o'clock that I'm going to choose tomorrow at 12 o'clock. So there's that lack of rigidity in I need, I will do the same thing every time I'm approached with this, or I will think the same thing, or I will act the same thing. That's like, you know, I always say to the client's, you want to come to the session? Part of you wants to come, part of you doesn't want. You are, you're allowed to have both feelings. And then if I had 12 hands, there'd be 12 feelings in between. Yep. So learning to choose what's helpful for you in the moment and knowing that that might be different at any moment in time for everyone, like what Rachel chooses, what I choose, completely different, right? So just to clarify, in order to get to this place or at least work to this place, you have to stop and identify what the thoughts actually are. And then that gives you the opportunity to create space to observe or to be mindful. And then you can get to the place of choice or flexibility or even asking more questions about the choice. Right. Being able to, I think asking questions helps the pause part. Mm-hmm. Like it, it helps. What I think questions do is bring you into the present moment. Sure. And that makes a bigger space for pause. And then you get to choose, right? And then you have to sort of overcome, like part of the work is overcoming the fear of new, different, opposite, hard, scary, uncomfortable. So there's dialogues that go along with that. Like, I'll be okay. I'll do a good, like how, what's a compassionate dialogue instead of, oh my God, I'm going to be a failure or nothing ever works or I'm not good enough or it'll never happen. You know, like those, how does anybody do better with that? You know, so beginning. What if someone actually doesn't believe that they'll be okay or that they'll do a good enough job? Oh well, I have. I, (laughs) I'm like, okay, 
who could you use if you if you needed to use my mind could you use my it's like sort of the training wheels like what would Sandra Uh do what would Sandra say what would your Mm -hmm. best friend do what would what would you do for your best friend it's really taking your mind which is stuck even the part of you that says you know I don't believe you that's a stuck mind like Mm -hmm. that right I'm not sure that you know like that's just a way of protecting yourself you have to get to like how did you get so stuck that you don't believe anything like you know like why are you holding on to this so tightly you know looking again going back to the very beginning of our conversation at what how does it serve you to not believe and is there anybody I mean then I would investigate that a little bit more before I would push for you know you need to believe me because they won't anyways (laughs) yeah right i mean the more you push against it the more it's going to go away but i was like wow what's it like to be in a place where you can't really trust anybody else or how did that happen so that's a little bit Mm -hmm. exploratory on the psychological side and i might bring you know bring that to my the therapist partner that's working with me on that then it's always good when you're working with a partner and it's interesting because a, a traditional psychodynamic work is like you have you know, one person, but in this work with eating disorders, you have two, sometimes three, you have a group person. Mm -hmm. And so being able to see that as a reconstructive relationship, like a reconstructive family relationship, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, being taken care of differently. What do you mean you spoke to so-and-so? I said, yeah, because I'm really concerned about you, which is a different kind of, you know, like, what does that feel like to be paid attention to and taken care of and have your needs met? by the team, which is something you didn't get in your family. So there's all kinds of, like you can see by the way I talk that I have a very strong psychological understanding and how that influences what I eat. It's not what people eat is not cut and dry like that. Like, you know, even how they talk to me or what they're willing to tell me has to do with dynamics. Like, oh, I was ashamed to write that down or I didn't know what you would think of me or are you mad at Mm -hmm. me? I'm like, what is that? (laughs) so you have to be able to fend in all of those things you know yeah Uh, something that people talk about all the time feeling stuck with this particular piece which which is connected but maybe a little separate is letting go of the idea of either weight loss or what culture calls the thin ideal and that for so many people is the hardest part of where they feel stuck. So hard. What would you say to somebody who like that's where they're spinning their wheels? Yeah, I would say so hard, but you know, look, I can say the cliche things with like, well, how is it working for you? You're 45 years old. You've been on 50,000 diets. You're still miserable. It's not <laughs> bringing you any joy. Could we try something different? Are you willing? And it's a very hard process because they'll hear me you know, I, I feel like I'm in the hearts. I'm like really working with your heart and I'm looking and I'm feeling you and I feel you and you might feel me in that moment. And I might make perfect sense to you in our room, but then you go out in the world and you know, there's Ozempic and Manjaro and and it's bombarding because those messages pull on that old rigid part, that dining. And so we're in this constant learning, growing, changing and trusting. And it's not easy. I don't have a good answer for that. I have a good answer for, I don't think, well, let's get you feeling well. Let's, there's a difference between eating to lose weight 
and while eating, they're not the same. I mean, when people talk about things being healthy in our culture, it's a guise for dieting. Most people don't know what eating health is. They only know that this will help me lose weight or don't not lose weight. So I have a pet peeve about that and that word because I don't like the word because it doesn't, you know, if I say healthy to 10 different people, it means 10 different things. Mostly it means eating foods that keep me thin. Mostly. Yeah. Most yeah. people don't yeah. know about strength and fortitude and longevity. I mean, we are a machine, right? So if I take good care of my car, my car hopefully will work well for a longer period of time unless I have a genetically predisposed car, right? So, but even with that, the better nourishment will help my body and my brain function and make better decisions. A mind that is dieting is restrictive and is undernourished and underfed and not going to make good decisions. So it's, so there's a difference even in that dialogue. Oh, hold on a second. It, when you say you don't have a, a good answer to the question, I wonder if we can use the same formula that you talk about the stuckness with specific behaviors and apply that to somebody who might be struggling with the idea of, uh, you know, accepting their body where it is. Because I think for so many of us, we as practitioners get stuck on this idea. Like, I don't have the answer to this question. And we don't have to have the answer to everything. But if someone's feeling stuck, then how can we use all the ideas we, we talked about today and then apply it here? No, I agree with you. I definitely do. I mean, this is I've been doing this for 40 years, and I definitely do. But I do still have clients that are attached to that thought in a way that I would need like a chisel and a hammer to break totally. it. And so yeah. with those clients, I don't have the answer of how to break that apart, but I still do the work that I'm doing, which is I always end my everything by step, step, step. Where are you now? Mm -hmm. What is the next best step that you can take? What is the next? It really is about you know, getting away from, I want to achieve this. I need to be that. There's a number. There's a, it's like, okay, for today, bring it into the moment. And what is the next best thing that you can do to take care of yourself? I'm talking a different language. I'm not talking about yeah. losing weight. I'm talking about nourishment. I'm talking about feeling good about yourself. I'm talking about fueling your brain. I'm talking about those moments when you feel energized and creative. And it's not about a weight. Exactly. So yeah, I'm working it, but I do still have clients because of brain stuckness and because of the inability to shift gears and because of the people that are around. That's true. Can't detach from that. You know, if I could take them to, um, you know, Esleyan with me for, uh, you know, forever, because I still think <laughs> like some of these clients, once they came back, I mean, look at the clients that we send to treatment centers. They get it. They feel it. They're, they're in it. They can talk the language. And then they come back to their families. I mean, if you grew up in a diet family, you, you don't have a big shot, yeah. right? It's a lot of work to both divorce yourself from the diet culture and sort of divorce yourself from your familial culture around that. Yeah. Well, that I guess is another can of worms. So just in the <laughs> interest of time, uh, let's wrap up before I do. Can you share with our listeners where they can find you? So I run a treatment center called eating disorder treatment collaborative. So that, that there's a website for that. I also run a free support group on Saturday mornings uh, called chats in the living room where I have experts from around the world come and chat with me like I'm chatting with Rachel. And uh, I think that's where you can find me. Or Sandra Kronberg has a website too. 
just casually. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. This was so fun. Yes, I had fun too. You made it to the end. Thank you for listening. Every single one of your downloads means so much to me. If this conversation is leaving you wanting more, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. You'll have the opportunity to reply back directly to me over there. Can't wait to see you in your inbox.